This week on the show, we're upgrading FreeBSD from 11.3 to 12.1 and show you how to do that. We cover the DistroWatch switch to FreeBSD. Uh, also talk about Torvalds uh, saying don't run ZFS. Uh, we talk about OpenBSD uh, IKD removing automatic IPv6 blocking. We also cover an article about working towards LLDB on i386. And we cover memory hard argon 2 hashing schemes in NetBSD. This week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 334. DistroWatch running FreeBSD, recorded for the 22nd of January 2020. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Beuschling. And I'm JT. Oh, surprise, surprise. Yes, uh, we figured Alan should have a little bit more of a break, so we're switching in our uh, longtime editor and producer for BSD Now, JT. Yeah, it's great to be here. I am I am the man behind the curtain that now gets to show that he really does exist. Exactly. He has a voice now, at least. And uh, he's happy to uh, help me out here in this episode, and we'll go through the news as always. Uh, the first one this week is uh, the headlines, starting with upgrading FreeBSD from 11.3 to 12.1. So people are like, yeah, well, I've done this already, but uh, so what's the catch here? No, this one has a bit of a uh, informational thing for the people who have not done it yet and want to make sure that they uh, didn't forget anything. So, uh, posting goes like the following. Uh, now here's something more like what I was originally expecting, they write, uh, the content of this blog to look like. I'm in the process of moving all our servers, FreeBSD ones, about 30 in total, from 11.3 to 12.1. We have our own local build of the OS, and until packaged base gets to a state where it's reliably usable, we're stuck doing upgrades the old-fashioned way. I created a set of notes for myself while cranking through these upgrades and wanted to make sure uh, or to share them that they are not really uh, word-specific and this process isn't very well documented for people who haven't done this sort of upgrade process for 25 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a long time. Okay, so their source and object trees are read-only exported from the build server over NFS, uh, which causes things to be slow. Uh, the makeconf etc and the sourceconf in etc are symbolic links to all of their servers to the master copies in user source so that when you do make install world uh, you can find the configuration parameters the system was built with the first phase because this is a major version upgrade is to install the new kernel so first things first they do a zfs snapshot a recursive one of their pool called tank they called that uh, snapshot before 12.1 so that they know where the snapshot was taken. And then they mount user source and user obj, go to the user source directly, uh, directory, and then make dash s install kernel. The dash s means uh, silent, I think, so no output. That saves it off a couple of seconds, not too many, but um, it's just boring output anyway. And if there are errors, then you will see them soon enough. And the last uh, set of options in this list is shutdown dash r now, so that you are rebooting your machine. They also say that if this were a minor version upgrade, it would be a lot simpler, uh, but yeah, it's a big one. So then they boot single user and get the server back on the network. Uh, so the boot menu pops up, and you type boot-s and mount-u root so that you can write to the root uh, partition. And then it's etc, rcd, zfs start so that all the zfs services and 
datasets are coming up again. Then it's sysctl net.inet.icmp.icmplim equals 50,000. In any case, they next start net start so that all the network services are starting. And then the next thing is the unbound that they're also running. So it's uh, another service that's also started. Uh, they continue to write that they might stop here and do some tests to ensure that ETC net start has actually brought the system back up with full connectivity. And if they're using CARP, the common address redundancy protocol, to down the CARP interfaces so that they don't unintentionally become a non-functional CARP master for whenever service would normally be running. Yeah, yeah, split brain and all that. Okay, IPv6 can be sticking point because the build server has a quad A record, but not all of the other machines have IPv6 connectivity. Okay, so that's a bit of a special thing they have, but okay. Um, now is the time for the userland part of the OS upgrade. So they go uh, mount user source and user OBJ then go to user source, and then etc update, dash lowercase p, lowercase t, uh, user obj ref12.1, the etc update, that's um, a much faster way to uh, use a tarball that's built once. Then they make uh, dash s install world, and then next is etc update, dash t, for user obj ref12.1 etc update, and then the unset, the, unset the editor environment variable, why is that? Yeah, probably not necessary. Uh, in single user, they have a comment here. Okay. Uh, next and last item here is ETC update resolve. That should uh, clean up some old uh, things that are not necessary anymore in this release. And it should be a lot simpler, except that make delete old wants to delete config files that are actually required by packages. They installed and managed by our config management, in this case, puppets. Okay, but that's fine. They run another make uh, check old files and uh, pipe that to Z to remove certain parameters like uh, etc and tpdconf, a uh, couple of commented out things there, I think, yeah. And then they run make delete old to remove all that other stuff they uh, certainly don't need anymore. Then it's just another uh, unmount of user obj and user source. And then, oh yes, then there's the case that uh, there's new boot code that needs to be installed into the ZFS pool. And for that, they need to run the gpart command with uh, the boot code parameter. Uh, they point that to the PMBR in boot and tell that to install the GPT ZFS boot in their ADA0P1, uh, is that, yeah. And the same for ADA1, because they seem to have a mirror pool, as one does. And, uh, yeah, then they run package static install dash f dash y package because new package system and new package tools and that is needed for updating the actual other packages because by then going from 11.3 to 12.1 that's a lot of updates and uh, you better have fresh packages for that so that's what package is doing okay then they install ah very nice uh, utility the dev cpu dash data port uh, because that figures what kind of uh, microcode updates your system needs in the CPU department, and we'll update those um, on the fly and also when the uh, system starts right away. Okay, and by that time, once they did the reboot, uh, they should be fairly up and running and boot into a freshly installed or upgraded 12.1 system. Very cool. Have you done uh, manual updates of systems, JT? I have not done manual updates of major versions. So I haven't gone from like 10 to 11 or 11 to 12. I've done some minor version updates, but never never the big ones. Yeah, no, not the big jumps, yeah. 
that can be a bit scary because you don't figure out, ah, did it work at least with the intermediate versions? You do a big jump and you kind of hope that it will <laughs> land on its feet. But uh, yeah, this seems pretty straightforward. And the, the extra stuff they have with the NFS exported uh, directories from the build server seems like uh, usable, especially when you have a lot of systems that you need to update this way. Otherwise, each system needs to re do the rebuild. Uh, it might take some time. Cool. So uh, if you're still looking for an upgrade in the manual part and don't want to use FreeBSD update, then this is a nice and straightforward how-to for you. So the next topic that we're going to cover is that DistroWatch has switched over to BSD. That's right. The site that everyone goes to to learn about Linux distributions is running on FreeBSD. And now this is a this is a Reddit thread. There's actually four separate threads all over Reddit that cover this, but instead we're just going to focus on the one in the FreeBSD subreddit. And I'm not going to read all of them. The link is in the show notes if you want to go down and read everything. So I'm just going to pick out a few of them uh, that they do, which I think are really nice. So one of the questions was, why switch software if you're having a hardware failure? Why not just replace the hardware? And they responded, well, we did replace the hardware which led us to the discussion on whether to keep running on the same OS. The old server's hard drive was going, and the server itself was getting old and expensive, comparatively, to run. So we decided to replace it with an entirely new and cheaper-to-run server. Since we were going at getting an entire fresh start on the hardware side, it opened the discussion to whether or not we wanted to keep running Debian or run another OS. We had been running Debian old stable, which meant any OS we installed would result in multiple configuration changes because of the leap forward in version numbers. So it really opened the door for what they wanted to run on our web server next. Another comment was, neat. I've always loved DistroWatch. Nice to see you guys open to talk. Can you tell me more about your environment? How many servers, databases, storage size, etc.? Also, did you ever consider running on any public cloud? On the webpage, it says it's hosted at Copenhagen. Are all the servers bare metal? And did you lose any layers of cache? To which DistroWatch team responded, sure, we can share more, but it's not very exciting. How many servers? One. The total storage size is around 200 gigabytes, and we're using about a third of that. The server has 32 gig RAM. Well, to be entirely fair, we have a few systems that hold backups or mirrors of the website for archiving and testing purposes. But as far as live production machines go, we just need the one. It works hard and runs smoothly. Did we consider running this on a public cloud? Not really. We looked at some VPS options during our testing and troubleshooting phase, but felt bare metal, more control, was the way to go for now. The price worked out to be about the same. The biggest factor in deciding where to host was mostly the support we received from the provider. They have been excellent for us. For layers of cache, none really to speak of apart from Apache's web server caching. Another interesting question, I see you've moved from FreeBSD to Debian in 2007. What were the reasons then? And the, the person from DistroWatch who's on this AMA responded, I wasn't involved with DistroWatch yet when that happened. However, at the time it was mentioned, he believes in a weekly newsletter, that the switch happened due to a project setup time. The change back in 2007 also happened due to a hardware failure, but it was more an immediate issue. The admin at the time was familiar enough with Debian to know it could be set up and mostly worked relatively quickly, but was not sure they could get FreeBSD up and functional in the same amount of time. FreeBSD was more of a manual setup back then compared to Debian's relatively easy apt-get install lamp. So Debian was the quick and dirty solution to get the site back online after a server meltdown, and it functioned really well for the most part. However, over the past 12 years, FreeBSD has done some nice work with ZFS, PF, boot environments, 
package for package management, and it became increasingly an increasingly attractive option, especially when time was less of a factor with the server failure and things were coming apart more gradually. I definitely know that when when systems go down and the only care is we need this up and running yesterday, just get it running. Sometimes decisions have to be made just to get yourself back on your feet. So another question was, what kind of feedback have you received for the switch? Your website was one of my earliest introductions to the various different Linux distributions. And this answer is the exact type of answer you want. You mean feedback of our users? I don't think many people have noticed. And that's exactly right. You shouldn't have people noticing that you've changed web servers. The site hasn't changed unless people stumble across this Reddit thread or follow me on Twitter. They probably haven't perceived any change. A few people in the FreeBSD community liked or retweeted my posts about the migration, but otherwise, it's been a pretty quiet event. I'm glad we were able to introduce you to Linux distributions early in your journey. That makes me a happy nerd. Yeah, going from a Linux server to a FreeBSD server for a website is not difficult. It does not require a lot of effort, and it's just going to work. So if you're considering doing the switch, don't be worried that you're going to run into a ton of issues. Yeah, there are people who have done this before, and... uh... It's not uh, too scary if you've done a couple of experiments before. Yeah. Don't just try out FreeBSD once you start uh, the migration. (laughs) That might be a bit uh, stressful. Yes. I mean, I would suggest that you do a trial run off your production server just to make sure you've got it. Um, But yeah, it's it's not a challenging thing to do. So the last question I'm going to cover right now is, what was the reasoning behind the switch? Is the hope that FreeBSD might be less of a moving target? Anything else that just feels better. And there were several factors. One was familiarity. Most of the servers I manage at work already run FreeBSD, so there is less mental overhead switching back and forth writing little useful scripts. In the past, I was sometimes running into issues where I'd be writing something for FreeBSD and have to port it to Debian or the reverse. This way, I can use the same helper scripts across pretty much all my servers without having to worry about compatibility issues. I no longer need to shift mental gears between looking for things in Etsy versus user local Etsy 2. Two, FreeBSD tends to have fewer changes between major versions, yet it has about the same support cycle life five years as Debian. Three was ZFS snapshots and boot environments. It's a bad feeling when an upgrade breaks something and you want to roll back. With boot environments, that is a quick and easy way, quick and easy process to get back to a working configuration. Four, Debian's shift to systemd was a factor. Not that we necessarily are opposed to systemd itself, but when we tested the migration from the old sysvnit system to systemd on another Debian server, it broke a bunch of things. Switching to FreeBSD caused less issues in that way. Five, aside from Debian, FreeBSD was the platform everyone on our team has the most experience with. So the OS we installed was likely to be one of these two, between OS and Deb- or Debian and FreeBSD. As I mentioned above, FreeBSD sends to be less of a moving target, had built-in ZFS, and relatively few drawbacks. Number six was a personal note. He likes the way FreeBSD is organized. He likes the way it separates the core OS, which updates rarely, from packages. FreeBSD also runs fewer processes and seems to have fewer moving parts. When we all set up our services on FreeBSD, we had about 55 processes running. On Debian, it was around 300. And the last reason he gives is, for some reason, we kept running into a weird kernel-related bug with Debian, even across multiple kernel versions. Every so often, the scheduler would go nuts, and the system would suddenly be using around 95% of the CPU just for kernel processes. It wasn't running low on RAM or anything obvious, and they spent quite a bit of time trying to sort that out. But in the end, only a reboot would fix the issue. And so far, they haven't noticed the same issue with FreeBSD and the same type of services and load running. 
So yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of other questions that have been asked. Um, a bunch of the answers are really interesting. So if you're curious about more, uh, give that link a, a click and read it for yourself. Uh, and also thanks for the many people who have sent us this story to feedback at bsdnow.tv because it made the rounds definitely on the net. And uh, yeah, people wanted us to comment on that or at least cover it on the show. Time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we found that uh, uh, there's more work going on in OpenBSD than uh, we previously covered. Uh, this article is about IKEY-D automatic IPv6 blocking removed. Uh, so this is over at the OpenBSD FAQ, uh, which you should read, which has a couple of nice items. But this one in particular reads that uh, the active... Uh, wait, where is it? Ah, uh, OpenBSD development is known as the current branch. These sources are frequently compiled into release notes or releases known as snapshots. Aggressive changes are sometimes pushed in this branch and complications can arise when building the latest code or operating from a previous point in time. Some of these steps uh, for getting over these hurdles are explained on this page. And Make sure you've read and understand how to build the system from source before using current and the instructions below. So that's important to know. Um, so the actual news here is that IKED, it's IKED, the daemon no longer automatically blocks unencrypted outbound IPv6 packets. This feature was intended to avoid accidental leakage, but in practice was found to mostly be a cause of misconfiguration. Instead, if you would like to explicitly block these packets at the following to your etcipsec.conf, not the ikedconf, so don't touch this file, touch ipsec.conf, and uh, make the following changes. Uh, add a line that says flow ESP out from colon colon slash zero to colon colon slash zero type deny. And also enable loading it with uh, rcctl enable ipsec and ipsecctl dash f etc ipsec.com to load this uh, change immediately. And uh, they close uh, this with if you previously used ikeed. Uh, dash six flag to disable this feature. It is no longer needed and should be removed from etcrc.conf.local if used. Okay, so that's important to know. And it seems like uh, it's fairly straightforward. Yeah, it's just a, a single line and a bit of a, a restart of a service or reloading, and that uh, should get people in the IKD line on OpenBSD. Our next story is one that Alan is probably sad he is missing out on because it's about ZFS. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this week we have an article from the guys over at It's Foss about Linus Torvald's comments about not using ZFS on Linux. And his exact quote was, don't use ZFS, it's that simple. It was always more of a buzzword than anything else, I feel, and the licensing issues just make it a non-starter for me. Um, this is what Linus Torvald said in the mailing list, once again, to explain his dislike for the ZFS file system, specifically over its licensing. To avoid unnecessary confusion, this is more intended for Linux distributions, kernel developers, and maintainers than individual Linux users themselves. Now, ZFS was open-sourced in 2003, and this would have meant that Linux distributions could have started supporting it, but that really didn't happen because of, as we all know, there's lots of drama and complexity about different open-source licenses. Uh, ZFS is under the CDDL, or the Common Development and Distribution License, and the Linux kernel is under the 
GNU GPL V2. Actually, the kernel is a whole bunch of different licenses for different parts. There's LGPL2, there's LGPL3, there's GPL2, there's GPL3. It's kind of a mess in there, but it's all mixed together and somehow legally all placed together nicely. However, the CDDL isn't really compatible with um, some of the GPL that's in, in the kernel. And it was noted by PC World that if ZFS was included in the Linux kernel, this would mean that the kernel plus ZFS is a derivative work. Um, while the whole derivative thing is a matter of debate, and there's many people that have many opinions on it, Torvalds is skeptical of Oracle. I mean, after all, Oracle does have a history of suing enterprises for using its code, like the Oracle Android suit from a couple years ago. He goes on to say, other people think that it's okay to merge ZFS code into the kernel and that the module interface makes it okay, and that's their decision. But considering Oracle's litigious nature and the questioning over licensing, there's no way I can ever feel safe about doing so. And I'm not at all interested in some ZFS shim layer thing either that some people think would isolate the two projects as it adds no value on their side. And given Oracle's interface copyright suits, i.e. Java, he doesn't really think that that's a real licensing win either. Linus doesn't want the Linux kernel to get into legal troubles with Oracle in the future, and as such, he, he refuses to include ZFS in the mainline kernel. And I can't exactly blame him on that choice. I would not want to get into legal troubles with Oracle either. Uh, he stated that there's no way that he can merge any of the ZFS efforts in until he gets an official letter from Oracle that is signed by their legal main counsel, or preferably Larry Ellison himself. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that's that's not going to happen. Um, now, this doesn't stop distributions from shipping ZFS as a kernel module, which I believe is what uh, Canonical is doing with Ubuntu, but actually baking it into the kernel itself, yeah, that, that's kind of a no-go. Um, and honestly, this this issue kind of strikes me as comical that there's so many in the open source kind of news uh, community that are making this out to be like, oh my, can you believe this? I mean, Linus has been really open about licenses in the past and even very critical of the GPL v3 himself. There was a conference down in Australia, I believe it was last year, where he spoke very openly that he doesn't personally like GPL v3, he liked the v2 code, and that's why he kept the primary license and all the stuff under GPL v2. So it kind of, I kind of think it's kind of humorous that there are people that are taking this this point of his and going, "Wow, Linus has a an opinion about licenses. Mm. That's just crazy." I mean, <laughs> this this is what you should expect uh, from the guy who who runs the kernel and has been very vocal about licenses and what he does and doesn't like. Yeah, so that's uh, what people kind of stumbled upon. It's like, which ZFS does he mean? Is it the, the open ZFS, and or is it just the one from Oracle? So that kind of uh, gave a bit of a discussion on the net. But yeah, it's uh, it's news anyway, so we figured we covered this. It doesn't uh, touch the BSDs too much uh, that are using ZFS anyway, but um, it might create some fear, uncertainty, and doubt, which uh, hopefully doesn't uh, cause too much confusion. Switching gears a little bit, uh, we have a report from NetBSD in their blog about the GSOC 2019, uh, a final report here, incorporating the memory hard Argon2 hashing scheme into NetBSD. So this is uh, posted by Jason High. And uh, the introduction reads, we successfully incorporated the Argon2 reference implementation into NetBSD slash AMD64 for our 2019 Google Summer of Code project. We introduced our project here as a link to extra show information. Yeah, in this one. And they provide some hints on how to select parameters as well in a different document. 
for their final report, they will provide an overview of what changes they made to complete the project. So you might ask, what's this Argon2 thing? So the Argon2 reference implementation, uh, in the separate document available, uh, is available under the Creative Commons CC0 1.0 and the Apache public license. To import the reference implementation into source external, we chose to use the Apache 2.0 license for this project. So in their initial phase one, we focused on building the libargon2 library, integrating the functionality into the existing password management framework via libcrypt. And towards this end, they incorporated the reference implementation and created the glue to incorporate the change into user source external Apache. And so argon2 basically is a hashing algorithm uh, a reference implementation of Argon2, which is, yeah, as the website says, a password hashing function uh, that won the password hashing competition, which is uh, called PHC. Uh, Argon2 is a password hashing function that summarizes the state of the art in the design of memory hard functions and can be used to hash passwords for credential storage, key derivation, and other applications. So that's a bit of a, a backstory here. And it has a simple design aimed uh, at the highest memory filling rate and effective use of multiple computing units while still providing defense against trade-off attacks by exploiting the cache and memory organization of the recent processes. So the initial phase was done, and the Argon2 reference implementation provides both a library and a binary. They, they built a libargon2 library to support libcrypt integration, and the Argon2 lib, uh, binary to provide a userline command line tool for evaluation. They also um, provided instructions how to build that code, which is... Uh, uh, fairly straightforward. It's basically a, a make file entry. And once that is done, you can start running the make and it will create the following uh, files and symbolings. Argon, Argon2, and uh, so, yeah, these are common symbolings you would find in your uh, slash lib directory. Uh, okay, this goes on for a while. So you can now uh, use the pwhash uh, command to uh, hash an, a, a password, a test password. Don't hash it with your real password for now to just test it in case something goes wrong. Uh, so once built, you can specify argon2 with the dash capital A command line argument to pwhash, followed by the argon2 uh, variant name and any of the parameterized values specified in argon2. There's a man page for that. And then you get some crazy hash gibberish. Uh, but that's your encrypted password. And to simplify argon2 password management, we can utilize the passwd uh, command or passwd.conf to apply argon2 to a specified user or all users. So if you add users in the future to your system, the new hashing algorithm will be applied to those. And for the existing ones, you can, uh, I guess, change your password once and then it will use the new hash. Uh, the same parameters I accepted for argon2 and to specify argon2 with non-default parameters for user test user, you can put the following in your passwd.conf uh, there's a local cipher equals argon2i, comma, t equals 6, m4096, p equals 1. This is probably a couple of initializations for the password uh, hashing. Uh, then they do the passwd dance for a test user. And then once they set up the passwords and enter it twice, uh, they are now grabbing for test user in etcmaster.passwd. And sure enough, there's a different string than the other ones because this is now using the argon2. You can uh, uh, test this on your system as well. Uh, so the speed of this one, uh, you can like do an echo of uh, password, then pipe that to Argon2. 
and then give it some salty uh, parameters, <laughs> some salt that to, to initialize it, and uh, it tells you how long it takes to, to hash this, this input. Hey, seems like a nice approach. Uh, they close this with, we provide one approach to evaluate Argon2 parameters, uh, tuning in their second post. And in addition to manual testing, they also provide some ATF tests, so automatic testing framework, uh, for deep PW hash for both hashing and verification. These tests are focused on encoding correctness, matching encodings to test results during execution. So always test your code, and especially when there's uh, code you write new or import, then it's better to test it before uh, trusting it. They conclude that they have successfully integrated Argon2 into NetBSD using the native build framework, uh, and extended the existing functionality to support local password management using Argon2 encoding. Uh, they're able to tune Argon2 so that they can achieve reasonable performance on NetBSD. In this final post, uh, we summarize the work done to incorporate the reference limitation into NetBSD and how to use it. Uh, we hope you can use the work completed during this project. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in the Google Summer of Code 2019 and the NetBSD project. Oh, very nice. Always nice to read uh, when there's Google Summer of Code uh, projects finished and are now part of the operating system in uh, one way or the other. Yeah, it's really nice to see. And to follow that up, we have more NetBSD news. Working towards LLDB on i386. And as someone who loves old retro hardware, it warms my heart that there are people out there that still care about i386. Oh, yes. <laughs> so the article states... Upstream describes LLDB as a next-generation high-performance debugger. It is built on top of LLVM Clang toolchain and features great integration with it. At the moment, it primarily supports debugging C, C++, and Object C code, and there is interest in extending it to more languages. In February 2019, he started working on LLDB as contracted by the NetBSD Foundation. And so far, he's been working on re-enabling continuous integration, squashing bugs, and improving NetBSD core file support. Extending NetBSD's ptrace interface to cover more register types and fix Compat32 issues, fixing watchpoint and threading support. Throughout December, he continued to work on the buildbot maintenance, in particular enabling compile RT tests, and he's revived and finished an old patch for the extended register state in core dumps. He started working on bringing proper i386 support to LLDB. Uh, as far as LLVM updates, there were some general ones. Uh, enabling and fixing more test suites. In his last report, he indicated that he started fixing test suite regressions and enabling additional test suites belonging to compiler RT. So far, he's been able to enable the following. Built-ins library, which is an alternative to libgcc, profiling library, ASAN, which is an address sanitizer and static and dynamic, CFI, which is control flow integrity, LSAN, which is a leak sanitizer, MSAN, memory sanitizer, SafeStack, which is a stack buffer overflow protection, TSAN, which is the threads sanitizer, UBSAN, undefined behavior sanitizer, UBSAN minimal, and X-Ray, the function call tracing. In case someone's wondering how different memory-related sanitizers differ, here's the short answer. ASAN covers major errors that can be detected with approximate two times slowdown, out-of-bounds accesses, use-after-free, double-free, etc. LSAN focuses on memory leaks, that has almost no overhead, while MSAN detects uninitiated reads with a three-time slowdown. He goes on to talk about the demise and the return of LDD. In his last report, I've mentioned that we're switching to using LDD as a linker for the second stage builds. Sadly, this was only to discover that some of the new test failures were caused exactly by that. 
As he reported back in 2019, NetBSD's dynamic loader does not support executables with more than two segments. The problem has not been fixed yet, and we're so far relying on explicitly disabling the additional read-only segment in LDD. However, Upstream started splitting the RW segment on GNU R-E-L-R-O, effectively restoring the three segments, or up to four, with their without their previous hack. This forced me to initially disable LDD and return it to GNU LD. However, Upstream suggested using dash Z no rel row recently, and we've been able to go back down to two segments to re-enable it. So, NetBSD I3 to 6 support for LLDB. As the next stage, a next step in my LDDB work, I've started working on providing I3 to 6 support. This covers both native I3 to 6 systems and 32-bit executable support on AMD64. In total, the combined AMD64 I386 support covers four scenarios. One, 64-bit kernel, 64-bit debugger, 64-bit executable, which is all native 64-bit. 64-bit kernel, 64-bit debugger, 32-bit executable. Another uh, scenario is 64-bit kernel, 32-bit debugger, and a 32-bit executable. And lastly, a 32-bit kernel, 32-bit debugger, and a 32-bit executable, which is, of course, native 32-bit. Those cases are really different only from the kernel's point of view. For scenarios 1 and 2, the debugger is using the 64-bit ptrace API, while in cases 3 and 4, it's using the 32-bit ptrace API. In case 2, the application runs via Compat32, and the kernel fits its data into 64-bit ptrace API. In case 3, the debugger runs via Compat32. Technically, cases 1 and 2 are already covered by the AMD64 code in LLDB. However, for users' convenience, LLDB needs to be extended to recognize 32-bit processes on NetBSD and adjust the data obtained from Ptrace to 32-bit executables. Cases 3 and 4 need to be covered via making the code build on i386. Other LLDB plugins implement this by creating separate i386 and AMD64 modules, then including 32-bit branch in AMD64 that reuses parts of the i386 code. He is following suit with that, and he plans to implement 32-bit process support case for case number two, which was the 64-bit kernel, 64-bit debugger, but a 32-bit executable. Um, Then, to port everything to i386. So far, he has implemented the code that recognizes 32-bit processes and has started implementing i386 register interface that is meant to map from 64-bit ptrace register dumps. However, it does seem to map registers correctly at the moment, and I'm still debugging the problem. Future plans. As mentioned above, I'm currently working on providing support for debugging 32-bit executables on AMD64. Afterwards, I am going to work on porting LLDB to run on i386. I am also tentatively addressing compiler RT test suite problems in order to reduce the number of build bot failures. I also need to look into remaining kernel problems regarding simultaneous delivery of signals and breakpoints or watch points. Um, And this work has been sponsored by the NetBSD Foundation. So NetBSD, Thank you for continuing to support i386. There are people out there who do care and do want to use it. Yeah, very nice work. So it's time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, We found a couple of items that might be of interest to you. The first one being an open source Civilization 5. So Uncif. This is over at GitHub. And from the screenshot, it's uh, looking familiar. And it has the usual uh, items and stats that you always want to make sure that you are a civilization is uh, on top of the other ones. 
And a uh, little description here. Uh, what is this? An open source Android slash desktop port of Civ 5 made with Lip GDX on Android Studio. Oh, very nice. Uh, so they ask if people are interested in uh, contributing a couple things. Uh, you can uh, definitely do that. And uh, there's a little FAQ down here. Then, of course, yeah, they haven't implemented all the features yet. But, yeah, for a little nice round or two uh, with Civilization, that's uh, definitely doable. And uh, I guess it's not too difficult to build. People should check that out. Uh, then we came upon a BSD group uh, in Italy. So this is uh, bsdnotizie.blogspot.com. My uh, Italian is pretty much non-existent, but uh, I guess for the uh, Italian users or people who know how to uh, translate websites, well, Google can do that for you. Ah, this is basically a listing of uh, user groups in Italy and uh, Telegram groups and Facebook groups so people can find them uh, in case they want to get involved or talk to people that are also BSD-minded. Uh, so there's uh, Melden, Mufi, uh, OpenBSD Italy, Ita or I Italia, uh, Bug Italy, and NetBSD Italia. Uh, the last one uh, not being too active, they write, but, yeah, well, the other ones might be uh, in the more talkative type. Cool. Uh, so, uh, Italian BSD users assemble. Uh, so, oh, the next one is also interesting for the history uh, folks among us. Uh, we found an answer to the question, why is Wednesday, November 17, 1858, the base time for OpenVMS? So, it's not the Unix uh, timestamp. It's a different one, and it's a much earlier one. Uh, this is from the OpenVMS uh, system, and uh, it doesn't have an author, but it's probably the system manual of sorts. And the answer is here, November 17, 1858, is the base of the modified Julian Day system. The original Julian Day, or JB, is used uh, by astronomers and expressed in days since noon, January 1st, 4,713 BC. This measure of time was introduced by Joseph Scaliger in the 16th century. It is named in honor of his father, Julius Caesar Scaliger. Note that his Julian day is different from the Julian calendar named for the Roman emperor, Julius Caesar. Ah, yes, yeah. Okay, no, no confusion there. Uh, and so why 4,713 BC? Scaliger traced three time cycles and found that they were all in the first year of their cycle in 4,700. 13 BC, the three cycles are 15, 19, and 28 years long. By multiplying these three numbers, 15 times 19 times 28 is 7,980, he was able to represent any date from 4,713 BC through 3,267 AD. Uh, the starting year was before any historical event known to him, and in fact, the Jewish calendar marks the start of the world as 3,761 BC. Today, this numbering scheme is still used by astronomers to avoid the difficulties of converting the months of different calendars in use during different eras. And why 1858? Julian Day, uh, uh, oh, Julian Day 2,400,000 just happens to be November 17, 1858. And so uh, the modified Julian Day uses the following formula, MJD equals JD minus 2,400,000.5. The 0.5 changed when the day starts, and astronomers had considered it more convenient to have the day start at noon so that the nighttime observation times fall in the middle. Oh, of course, yes. Uh, 
Uh, but they changed to conform the commercial day. If you want to know more about this, read the rest of the article. That's certainly an interesting read. All right, then uh, we have an article for benchmarking shell pipelines and the Unix tools philosophy. Uh, this is over at the Universe of Discourse. So benchmarking uh, shell pipelines, uh, why would you do that? Uh, they describe this as sometimes I look through the HTTP referral logs to see if anyone is talking to my blog. I use the F11 command to extract the referrer fields from the log files, count up the number of occurrences of each uh, referring URL, then discard the ones that are internal referrers from elsewhere on my blog, and uh, that gets them the proper answer. Ah, yes, they, they found a couple of things that are not too uh, quick in this one. So they wondered why, they, why that is the reason, and they figured it must be the pipes. So the point of the article is that the investigation uh, into uh, why this is slow produced the following pipeline, and think this is a great example of the Unix philosophy because you can just you know pipe other tools to each other to figure out uh, the answer, and they do an interesting thing with uh, the pipeline they want to analyze and figure out why they you know really deal which that or with that specific pipeline they want to get into. Uh, because and then it comes to oh how do I use how do I time this because if it's a benchmark you want to know a certain time and if you use the time command uh, this will only time a single process uh, plus its sub processes and so um, that's that's a bit of a peculiar uh, measurement here but it's definitely an interesting read for people who uh, want to do this themselves and what kind of uh, things come up uh, that might be a part of the solution here so read the article it's interesting. And that way, you can also learn a bit about how Unix works and yeah, the Unix philosophy in general. And last but not least, uh, we want to mention this again, uh, because people may have not heard about this or maybe didn't remember. Uh, here we have uh, G. Matthew Rice uh, from the LPI uh, giving a talk about LPI and BSD working together. Uh, this is from LinuxConf AU from the Gold Coast in 2020. A uh, couple days, I guess, or weeks, last week, uh, they finished that conference, and this is the talk in the uh, BSD track about the LPI now having a BSD certification. So that's interesting, and uh, people should uh, watch that if they are interested in taking that examination. We are going to close out the show with feedback this week. We have three sections of feedback. The first one is from our friend Pat. Hello, Alan and Benedict. We have some news from NiceBug. Dr. Paul Vixie has agreed to give a talk on our Tuesday, March 3rd NYC bug meeting. Our meetings are usually held on Wednesdays, but we have scheduled this meeting on Tuesday to accommodate Dr. Vixie's travel schedule. We will announce the venue when it's official, but the meeting will be happening on March 3rd. And they said they wanted to thank you for all the things that we do for the BSD community. Since BSD now has been including us in the Beastie Bit segments, not a meeting has gone by without a newcomer and a BSD now listener paying us a visit. Well, that's that's nice to hear. Yeah, definitely. Any BSD user group not taking advantage of this resource is doing themselves a disservice. Absolutely. If you run a BSD user group and you are going to have a meeting, send us an email so that we can get your meeting into the show notes so everybody hears about it. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's what we're for. We want to make your uh, user group visited by more people who are listening to the show or just have the time to go. And uh, also the people, 
a thanks, a big thanks to the nice bug folks because they're running their bug for a long time now. And uh, they also bring interesting people to the, to the meetings and record all that. So that's also a great service for people who cannot make it uh, to New York and uh, still want to know what's going on in the BSD world. And next, we have an email from Madakar. If I pronounced your name wrong, I apologize. Uh, hi, Benedict, Alan, and JT. Thank you for including my feedback email in episode 317. You're welcome, and welcome to the feedback section of this episode as well. I wanted to tell you about the laptop for which I had reached out to you. Soon after my email appeared on BSD Now, the laptop refused to boot up. The symptoms indicated that the data was safe, and though he had data, had backups, it was not current. He had been planning to back up the machine soon, as he had done some significant work recently. He was able to recover the data by booting up the disk by plugging it into another machine. So thankfully, he didn't lose any data, but this is a reminder, backup often. More often than not. Yeah, yeah. You'll never go wrong with more backups. The heating issue of the laptop was actually due to a hardware failure in progress. An IC in the power supply part of the main board of the laptop overheated and failed. Fortunately, he was able to get the failed parts replaced and the laptop repaired by someone who knew what he was doing. So now after the repair, the laptop has been running at a cool 36 degrees Celsius instead of 68 degrees Celsius. Yes, that's much better temperature. Hmm. He says that he guessed this may have been the root cause for FreeBSD rebooting due to overheating. However, OpenBSD had managed to run on the same hardware. Now, I'm curious if OpenBSD has some software magic that can fix hardware problems, because if they do, I definitely want, want to check that out. Um, it is curious why that, that wasn't as much of a problem. Maybe the, the load on the system was different just because of the hardware. I, don't, I can't come up with anything off the top of my head, but I'm glad that you got the issue resolved. Could be that OpenBSD um, is initializing the CPUs one by one and not using many of them like FreeBSD does and like uh, SMP concurrency. And that's a bit easy on the hardware, I guess, but I wouldn't know for sure. So it's mostly guesswork. Yeah. If anyone else knows, then let us know. And uh, we're still happy to not uh, have too many grilled laptops with the BSDs. <laughs> yes. So the last one we're going to cover today is an email from Warren, and it's more talking about R versus S. This has been a, we've had a couple emails in about this. Yes, the R language is a derivative of S. S was under a commercial license from AT&T for many years. So R is a clean room implementation, re-implementation of it, which is then completely subsumed to the point that R is now one of the most popular languages used in reproducible science and mathematics research, particularly in statistics. If you've never used R, it's a language vaguely similar to JavaScript, being scripty, dynamic, and functional, but with enough differences that it's jarring to switch between them. If the R language annoys you, but you'd like a similar sort of working environment, he encourages us to look into Jupyter, which supports many different programming languages, including R, but is most often used with Python. There are many other kernels available, doubtless one for your favorite scripting languages. And if you've ever used Mathematica, Jupyter is the same sort of notebook-based programming model, intermixing code, documentation, and support. So thank you for that additional information, Warren. Yeah, R is pretty powerful because it can also tie into other stuff like pull stuff into Excel or from Excel and like create all kinds of crazy things because it was extended over the years because R allows that with its language. And uh, it's an interesting one. It's not just for the statisticians among us or the mathematicians among us. 
it can also do a little bit of you know plotting and graphing so that might be interesting for people who want to like visualize something uh but i think that's uh the end of this show for this week uh again if you have anything for us that's interesting in uh, a future episode send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv and you never know when it appears <laughs> <laughs>